The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. What's another year? Well, it'll soon be time for making your mind up. Will love shine a light? Or are we all just a puppet on a string? Oh, stop it. Make it stop. Alas, we <laughs> cannot. The Eurovision Song Contest is unstoppable, though. I guess you could always turn off all your electronic devices and block your ears, but it will probably still rise like a phoenix. Enough, because this £15 million extravaganza is about so much more than music. Some would say it's not about music at all. Yeah, certainly politics is being staged in Liverpool because last year's winner Ukraine is in the middle of a war and... You know, that might actually be why they won in the first place. But. Well, <laughs> and everybody knows Cyprus will vote for Greece, even if they just turn up and sneeze loudly. And when did a staid, rather naff event in a dinner jackets become the world's largest gay festival? So what does the Eurovision Song Contest in its 67th year tell us about European history, politics, culture, social change and, yes, all right, music? That's our subject today. On the Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. Yes, so uh, interesting, talking yes. about politics yes. and music. And, music yes. and we had that uh, fantastic concert last yes. week, you may Excellent. remember. Yes, uh, yes, and yes. it was all very good. But why was Steve Winwood there? Well, he sang a song. Yeah, but what's his connection? No idea, tell well, me. He's, well, he, he, to, coincidentally, his yes. daughter yes. is married to uh, the former chair of the Tory party, Ben Elliott. Yes, who, you know, was raising a lot yes, of money yes, yes, for yes, the yes. Tory party. Some mm. of that money was, you know, allegations that well, it came yeah, from yeah. Uh, connections with... Where's uh, this going, with, yeah. Well, just the fact that there's a royal connection. There's a political connection there. Ben Elliott is linked to Camilla. Yes, well, he's, he's Camilla's uh, uh, nephew. Let me see. So she, obviously, you know, I think... <sighs> people were, know people, but everybody knows everybody in that yeah, neck of the Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, anyway. The, well, there's no... There's all no, my point is that he wasn't there for, any, for his musical skill. He well, was there... Because of connections. Maybe and, he was, and maybe people like. I mean, the, the point is that with all this, which comes out of this, is music is obviously in the ear of the beholder. Now, you may find Eurovision style music not to your choice, or you may. Um, but the point is that it involves an awful lot of cultural input, of course, but also social input, but also political input, because we know who votes for who in the in the voting, whatever happens. Well, it is, and it is bizarre. It's always been very bizarre, hasn't it, the choice mm. of music, mm. because it's never never the best. I mean, you look at, we, we won with Puppet on a String. Yes, in that's the a good song. Are people still singing? Really, but, you know, it was the, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, you know, there was uh, uh, Lulu, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was um, To Say With Love... You know, there was some... We were, we were going through your backstory here. Well, no, it's just that there was so much good music around, and we, we put out Puppet on a String. Yeah, yeah, but the, we, point, the point is really, is music <laughs> that has to appeal to everybody, isn't it? Or, yeah. or at some level does that. Mm. Uh, and I mean, it's been much more experimental recently. I mean, we had, yeah, was it Lordy, the, uh, the Finnish group, uh, yeah. heavy metal, um, all kinds of things popping up. But yeah, so it, it tells us a lot, I think, about the way in which taste, in inverted commas, heavily inverted commas, yeah. um, it has, has evolved over the years. Well, it used to be Euro trash. I mean, we used yeah. to look upon it as Euro trash, but you well, know, we would watch yeah. ironically. Yeah, some people still. Well, do. and also because there were, I mean, let's be honest, you know, as a mm. red-blooded male, there were a lot of attractive women wearing very little. In, yes, so, you know, so like a yes. Finnish singer not wearing much was quite appealing yes. to a bloke in the north of England. You know, I'm sure that was. <laughs> we're, we're definitely going into your backstory. <laughs> yeah. right, I'm, I'm I sorry mean, if this is turning something of a confessional. Uh, but now we've joined Euro trash. I mm. feel the UK is now part yeah, and parcel. And, and so we used to take the Mickey out of it. You know, mm. we our commentary was all but irony. Also, and, the camp has become the biggest part. 
of it in a mm. way. I mm. mean, it is it is the world's largest uh, song festival, apparently, but it is also, and that's pretty obvious, a very big LGBT uh, event mm. uh, and has been for for many years now. So, mm. in a way, what's been ta- was taken as a kind of sneer has been embraced. I would say. Yeah, but we'll find out whether that really is the case. But it is of significance. I mean, you may say, well, this is this is perhaps trivial and, and not befitting. Well, no, but I mean, the, the politics of it is very important. And front and center of that is Russia. Obviously, the fact that they were part of it now they're yeah. not, uh, and what influences that had? There's people pulling out because they can't afford to yeah. uh, be part of it because everyone else has got to chip in more because the money that was coming from Russia isn't coming in anymore. So yes. you know. <laughs> but, but, but also the fact that they're the ones who founded Eurovision, it's called Eurovision because, in fact, it's a European broadcasting network, and, and the big players in that, Britain, France, and a couple of others, get automatic entry to all this. So there's a lot of hierarchies going on. Mm. But it does tell us a lot about, about this, and, of course, it's all about money too, isn't mm. it? There's an awful lot of money invested. So in. can we predict uh, who would win? I mean, if every song was as good as each other, would we mm. be able to predict who would win? Is is sort of like a good song, a bit of a wild card, because it, it sort of changes the outcome. Would we be able to tell if all the songs were just as good as each other? Well, the politics of who would vote for each other, would we always arrive at the same answer? It's certainly true that some of the songs that haven't won have actually gone on to be big hits and have yeah. made a lot of money for people. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, that, there's that element to it as well. And speaking of money... Well, we, yes, well, there's the thing, because making money, it's not always easy, is it? Particularly when inflation is so high and uh, shares are falling or, well, all over the place, really. Same with bonds, and it's difficult to know, you know, what's the safe choice and you want to make sure that your money is protected and it's in safe hands and that's why uh, you know you need to talk to the people at Wigmore Associates they're there they can help you make the most of your money for yourself for your kids for your grandkids or maybe those more immediate needs like making sure you've got you know adequate health cover paying for an extension in the house whatever you want to do with your money they'll plan something for you Wigmore Associates where uh, do we find them well you find them at Wigmore I'm glad you asked that at Wigmore-Associates.co dot uk or you can give them a call on 0207 224 obviously tell them phil and roger sent you because they help our podcast and they make it possible so we're very very grateful to them right now let's talk about eurovision yes we have an expert coming up uh dr dean vuletic he's a contemporary historian he's written the book the eurovision song contest as a cultural phenomenon from concert halls to the halls of academia we are going to talk about the uh the science of eurovision well well if the behind it. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna we're gonna speak to him, and he joins us now. So, so Dean, are you? Uh, I mean, you can be honest amongst us. Uh, are you? Are you a Eurovision fan yourself? I mean, you're in Liverpool this week, so obviously you are. Well, now that I'm a Eurovision expert, I wonder how much of a fan <laughs> I still am. But I certainly was a fan. Uh, when getting into my research on Eurovision, yes. And I grew up in Australia watching Eurovision as a child. So I have a long history with Eurovision. Right. When, of course, Australia now part of Eurovision, which yes. I never quite... I mean, Israel was a stretch. Australia, I <laughs> mean... much a stretch. <laughs> but I, I suppose, I mean, a lot of people may be listening to this, Dean, who will say, well, h- hang on, you know, you've got an academic uh, historian involved in this. We're doing it on a very serious podcast. I mean, is it, isn't it just a festival of trivia? Is it important? Of course it's important. It's always reflected political, social and cultural changes in Europe. That's the topic of my book. I went into archives all around Europe researching this 
And uh, that's the conclusion I came up with, that Eurovision has always reflected the politics of contemporary Europe. So Britain's had an interesting relationship, hasn't it? Because, I mean, we used to, you know, we used to deride Eurovision. It was seen as, you know, part of Euro trash and, you know, the Brits used to think, oh, well, we're better than that. Uh, but we've to- totally embraced it now, haven't we? We're, we're part, of, part of the party. Yes, but I think that in uh, Great Britain there is a bit of a historical amnesia because in the 20th century, the United Kingdom was one of the most successful countries yeah. in Eurovision. So up there with Sweden and Ireland. So uh, just because British entries haven't done so well since 2000 doesn't mean that there isn't another 40 plus years of history in which the United Kingdom uh, didn't do well. It certainly did. So um, I think we should be focusing on this positive experience this positive british experience in eurovision rather than focusing on the last 20 years well somehow i noticed that um in britain you tend to focus on um your lack of achievement rather than your successes that's a, that's a very british that's a very british I'm thing croatian australian and you know when croatia came third in the world cup we had a huge party in zagreb when the British came second in the um, European Cup. You seemed so sad. <laughs> but yeah. do you know what? Because when we look like we're going to win, we pull back yes. just so we can, so we can be melancholy about it. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like celebrating it. Well, we've we we been doing nothing but celebrating it seems for the past two weeks here. But, um, but Dean, and what? after coming second last year, by the way, in Eurovision, <laughs> that's true. Of course, anyway, I mean, even with the king, we've got the second choice for yes. the king. You know, ask anybody. Ooh, who, ooh, ask anyone who down, yes, let's not go down that route. Um, but but let's look at this, Dean, because you say it is very much reflecting politics. Now, I mean, just that fact that you said that since 2000, uh, Britain hasn't won. Does that reflect the quality of the music or does it reflect the politics? I think it reflects the quality of the music because, simply put, other countries were more interested in winning Eurovision than the United Kingdom was, especially countries from Central and East Europe, which entered Eurovision after the fall of the Iron Curtain. So for big countries like the United Kingdom, but also Germany, France and Italy, it just wasn't such a prestigious thing to win Eurovision as it was for these other countries. So Mm. these countries ended up putting in more effort. They ended up putting in more resources into Eurovision. And this is why they ended up winning more than the um, big countries that are represented in Eurovision. I should also point out that the United Kingdom is a bit of a victim of its own empire in Eurovision because after 1999, it uh, was no longer compulsory to sing entries in national languages. Entries could be in any language and most entries have since been in English. So that because of that, the United Kingdom also lost an advantage of being able to sing in English. So you might have had more success in Eurovision since we did. We I, I, we should point out we did come second. Our favorite position. We did come second uh, last year. Well, you course, just said we? that. But the point was that Ukraine won last year. And to carry on with this theme about was the politics. politics. Well, it was it. I mean, like, uh, you know, Dean, you just said it actually was about the music in terms of of Britain. But a victory like last year's. I mean, Ukraine was always going to win, but because of politics rather than music. It's about the music, but it's also about the politics. Um, So certainly last year, it was about showing support for Ukraine. The war just began um, a few months before Eurovision. 
Eurovision was one of the first events that banned Russia from participating. So there was, um, how should I put it? It was a very recent phenomenon. And this was the first time that the international audience could react en masse to show its support for Ukraine. And remember, this is one of the few mega events in which people can actually vote. So this is why last year's Eurovision uh, did reflect a strong political statement in the voting. But I also think that audiences like to see political statements being made in Eurovision, especially since the win of the drag queen, uh, the Austrian bearded drag queen Conchita Wurst in 2014. People want to be able to um, relate to songs. They want the songs to be meaningful. They want the songs to say something about today's world, and especially at Eurovision, because Eurovision brings together different countries, different cultures. It's a reflection of international relations. And it's also very different to other televised song contests, which there are so many of these days. So people want Eurovision to have a political element to make it interesting. So this inclusivity that we're seeing now uh, more than ever in Eurovision, I wonder how that would play out or is playing out in, in, in countries which are less inclusive. So obviously yeah. Russia, Russia is out of the running. We don't want well, to win. We're using the word how- inclusive here. What we're actually saying is that this has become a major LGBT focusing thing. You talked about Conchita Wurst. Of course, there was Dana International before that. Uh, this has become a focus very much in the LGBT uh, area, it, hasn't it? And if Russia hadn't invaded and Russia was still part of it, Russia probably wouldn't want to be part of it. And probably there's probably other European nations that, for that reason, feel uncomfortable. I mean, Hungary is not in it, for example. There must be other countries which are feeling uncomfortable and are not in it for that reason, perhaps. Perhaps, but we need more proof uh, regarding the motivations of these countries that have withdrawn, such as Turkey, Hungary. It could well be that they're not comfortable with uh, remaining in Eurovision because of the LGBTIQ+. Um, emphasis. But um, on the other hand, there are some countries that did stay in Eurovision, uh, despite having uh, homophobic laws, such as Russia. Uh, Russia remained, even though Vladimir Putin and other high, highly ranked Russian officials criticized the win of Conchita Wurst. So even though they expose their um, national audiences to such content, despite the existence, as I mentioned, of homophobic laws, um, there is still a greater reason to stay in Eurovision for these countries well, and their governments. We're looking at the history of all this and, and, and the culture change and everything else. And if we go right the way back to the beginning of, of all this, 1956, I think, mm. um, what was it like then? And how, if we were to see it now, how different would it be? Just give us a sense of the perspective on that. And was was politics in the in the yeah, play then as culture. well? I mean, because you, you think Franco's Russia, uh, Franco's Russia, Franco's Spain <laughs> uh, won, didn't they? And so you know, we didn't hold it against the the fact that we had a, a you know a, a dictatorship. We still let them win the competition. Exactly. The uh, case of of uh, Franco Spain certainly points to politics being present in the contest in its early. Years. But let's go back to 1956, the very first year of Eurovision. West Germany sends an entry sung by a singer, Walter Andres Schwarz, who is a Jew and a Holocaust survivor. What does that tell you? Mm. Wow. 
That's interesting, politics isn't in it? the very first contest, a West Germany that is distancing itself from uh, its Nazi past. When it comes to where the first contest was actually held, it was held in a theatre in Lugano. The hosting was done for the first and only time completely in Italian, also partly because Eurovision was inspired by the San Remo Italian Song Festival, which was staged in 1951. It was a very formal affair, men in tuxedos, uh, women in uh, evening gowns. So it's very different to the uh, huge arenas that host Eurovision today with all of these fans coming in casual, uh, colorful gear, uh, waving flags and um, paying a lot of money <laughs> to also get these tickets. Well, indeed. So when did it begin to change then? Because, I mean, certainly my memories, and if you look back at the uh, at the film, you can see on online, as you say, full people in, in, in ball gowns and dinner jackets, very state, very stiff-feeling kind of affair. When did it change from that? Because in the 60s, it, it certainly was very different. It changed in the late 1990s, actually. Up until uh, then, the venues were still rather small, even though the clothing, okay, was changing, but it was still relatively formal. I went to Eurovision in Jerusalem in 1999, and I ended up being seated next to an ambassador. People were dressed up in suits. Um, it's a much smaller venue than than uh, the arena that it was staged in in Tel Aviv in 2019. So even then, it was more of a formal affair and tickets weren't on sale to the public. But um, the year before, in 1998, it was staged in Birmingham and um, it was a much bigger event. Tickets were on sale to the public. It was staged in an arena. Um, for the first time, you could also see the gay fans on television. That's when Dana International won too. Public voting was introduced. So really, it's the late 1990s where we really see Eurovision become uh, more commercialized and we see all of these innovations introduced. And a reason for this is also because the media market in Europe was becoming more commercial. The public service broadcasters like the BBC or Rai in Italy um, RTE in Ireland were also experimenting with more commercialization. So it really has to do with the greater commercialization uh, of the contest and the broader media market in so the does it, does it bring countries together? Is it more inclusive than than divisive? I mean, if you obviously Russia is the wild card here, isn't it? Because Russia's always been problematic. So in 2019, Ukraine pulled out because the the, the singer chosen by the Ukrainian people uh, was asked by the broadcaster if they, they, they could sign a contract to stop her playing in Russia and she refused so they pulled out because they couldn't find anybody else then you had George's entry in 2009 uh, we don't want to put in or we don't want to put in uh, I think was the play on words. So this sort of intense politics coming in really at that point. But it all revolves around Russia doesn't it so I wonder whether take Russia out of the equation I mean is it pulling the rest of you know is it pulling Western Europe together well, not really. There have always been political con controversies even before Russia joined Eurovision. Mm. So let's say in the mid-1970s, the biggest controversy regarded the tensions between Turkey and Greece after the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. Uh, there have always been controversies surrounding Israel's participation and the fact that, for example, other countries in the Middle East don't want to participate in uh, Eurovision because Israel is in it. 
then of course in the 1990s we had the wars in the former Yugoslavia and these tensions were also expressed at Eurovision so it's not just uh, about Russia there's a much longer history regarding uh political tensions regarding um actual wars being reflected in Eurovision but it's only a song contest why is all the politics i mean in the end it's about people getting up in front of other people and singing a song how does that feed into the national fact? but also why create the politics why is israel there because i know that was wasn't popular in 2019 we had uh, the icelandic entry they would drape themselves in the palestinian flag in the in the green room which was seen as controversial but having israel there is is pretty controversial as well so you can sort of so, sort of see their point i mean why are decisions like that made i wonder well, first of all, when you asked about the um, why isn't it just a singing contest where these singers uh, get up and sing songs? Well, it's not because they represent countries, even though the entries are put forward by the National Public Service broadcasters on stage. They appear under the names of countries. And this was actually a decision made by the European Broadcasting Union, the organizer of Eurovision in the early years of the contest. They debated um, whether the title of the song or the name of the artist or the name of the television station or the name of the country should be put onto the scoreboard. And in the end, they decided it should be the name of the country because this is what the audience can most easily relate to. So that already brought in the, um, let's say, international, not necessarily tensions, but the international uh competitive element in the contest and then it became a competition of countries not a competition of uh, national television broadcasters and that's when we see people voting very regularly for very the same people i mean cyprus always votes for greece greece always votes for cyprus i don't i mean croatia does croatia normally vote for uh, slovenia does it work that way i mean these these tensions and alliances are very strong in that. I remember in the 80s <laughs> catching the tail end of the Eurovision Song Contest and actually just I hadn't heard any of the music didn't know any of the songs and just watched the votes and you could almost predict who was going to vote for who based on, on the politics and often you'd be often you'd be right and there was vote trading going on that's true yeah I've been told this by persons who were part wow. members of the national delegations then but um sh- sure and the United Kingdom has also benefited benefited uh, from this, let's say, um, in its relationship with Ireland. Um, And the United Kingdom also benefited from the fact that it had English as an official language and could sing in English for for so long when other countries could not. So there are different advantages that different countries have. When it comes to, let's say, regional blocks, yes, they tend to vote for each other often because they share common um, popular music industries, such as in the former Yugoslavia. So they know each other's singers. And... um, This, I think, is rather normal and to be expected. And actually, in a region like the former Yugoslavia, should be something to be praised, considering Mm. what they've uh, gone through in terms of political... Would would Serbia vote for Croatia or Slovenia? Yes, they They certainly do. Okay, that's interesting. So So maybe we should see this as a positive thing in many regional contexts. You know, I mean, when you have things like that happening, when people are are voting against historic uh, background relationships, which might be, uh, you know, not the, the the most friendly, and you see them actually voting positively, I mean, that's that's a good thing. But when you it? get vote trading, maybe that's where you but start. Then, but so we presumably that idea of vote trading—that's why they're brought in the public vote to stop that sort of thing happening. 
Uh, no, uh, the opposite. They brought in the expert jury vote to uh, okay. prevent the public from uh, engaging in block voting. But, you know, in the late 1960s, the United Kingdom and Spain also didn't vote for each other at a time when there were heightened tensions over Gibraltar. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, you know, we're talking about the voting system, and that is one of perhaps the most controversial aspects of it, because, I mean, exactly as you intimated last year with Ukraine, it completely turned it on its head in a way and ukraine became the winner mainly almost entirely because of the popular vote going back i mean juries popular vote what how has that evolved since 1956 so until uh, 1998 there was 100 percent jury voting but then with the development of uh telephone technologies uh, public televoting was introduced in the late 1990s. For a while, for about a decade, it was 100% televoting, the voting system in Eurovision. But then because of these criticisms of block voting, especially in uh, East Europe, the uh, system was changed and it became 50% uh, expert jury voting and 50% public televoting. This year, the system has changed once again. There will be 100% public televoting in the two semifinals, and in the grand final, there will be 50% expert jury and 50% public televoting, because the European Broadcasting Union has decided that there isn't actually much of a difference uh, between the public and the expert jury vote. So there's 112 countries in the European Broadcasting Union. I'm sure there's not 112 <laughs> countries in, in Europe. No, and there's there only 30. There can't be 112. Well, that's how that was. Well, maybe, maybe no, I'm I, think it, I think it maybe links into the Eurovision system, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. they could be, um, you know, um, they could be partners, corporate yeah. partners. Yeah. But really, the members of the European uh, Broadcasting Union come from Europe and the Mediterranean Rim. And you asked me before, why is Israel in it? It actually goes to the interwar period when this region called the European Broadcasting Area was defined for the purpose of organizing radio frequencies among different countries so that these frequencies wouldn't interfere with each other. And this is why you have uh, the top of North Africa and the uh, Levant included in this region. It's purely for technical reasons. Right. Okay, then give us the answer for Australia. Go on and do that then. <laughs> why are they there? Australia is there because of people like me who grew up with non-English speaking uh, background parents. And we watched a television station called the Special Broadcasting Service, which was yeah, established SBS. in yeah. the 1980s to provide a multilingual programming to Australia's migrant communities. And yeah. then uh, we watched Eurovision with our families. And then when we went to university, we had Eurovision parties with our friends and it became a cult phenomenon. In Australia, well, and it goes well. It goes beyond Australia. In fact, because I mean, what's in, been interesting in the last year or two is it's become clear how popular it is in America, and the fact that a Hollywood movie was made uh, about Eurovision fairly recently. I mean, suggests that this this it, that it does go well beyond that. It didn't paint Europe in a particularly good light, though. Yeah, it, was, it? it was a funny film. <laughs> it was a funny movie. Yeah, it was. But um, I think it also had a lot of problems. Let's say in the way that it stereotyped Russians and fed fed this uh fed into this stereotype of the russians as always being uh the bad guys i think you it, it could have been um or it could have dealt with such issues in a more uh diplomatic way nonetheless <laughs> it was uh successful and um 
So what you're talking is you're arguing for subtlety, which is our, uh, which not I a, never, not, not, not a not, big Eurovision not, thing. No, not one of the strong points of Eurovision. No, no. But well, you know, there have been other examples in which Eurovision hasn't been successful. In America, for example, last year, there was the American Song Contest that was staged for the first time based on a license uh, from the European Broadcasting Union for the American Song Contest to be uh, developed along the lines of Eurovision. But it was held for one season and the ratings weren't high enough, so it wasn't repeated this year. Right. So maybe it's because they don't need to be drawn together in the same way, perhaps, that, that Europe does. And so I think I asked the question uh, earlier, but just about how much it does draw Europe together. Is it is it doing a good job, perhaps, you know, of, for example, keeping the EU together, even though there's these huge political differences? And, you know, it is very difficult when you've got so many different interests and so many dif- different economies of different strengths to have everyone unified in a way politically, but maybe the Eurovision Song Contest, maybe we're underestimating the the role it plays in all of that. It's certainly Europe's biggest cultural event. Uh, Hundreds of millions of viewers watch it every year. When I travel around Europe, giving talks on Eurovision or doing my research, uh, everyone has an opinion about Eurovision. It's a great conversation starter. And really, we don't have uh, so many cultural events like Eurovision that bring Europeans together. So it is special in that regard. And even the European Union has struggled to come up with um, an equivalent that would bring yeah, and, so and many is, Europeans together at the same time. But is it a cultural event or is it just a big party? It's a party, isn't it? It's really? both. It's both. But, but it's also a big, as we mentioned earlier, LGBT is a massive part of it now. Yes. And that is interesting. I mean, why has that happen because it's been an effect of the last what 20 years perhaps but it is huge and that gives it in a way more power perhaps i think the uh, lgbtiq plus following goes back uh, even earlier it just took time for eurovision to out itself and to really embrace this audience but you know that came with political and social changes in uh, Europe. So in the 1990s, we saw more discussion of these issues. We saw uh, legal moves towards gay rights and um, Eurovision changed as a consequence. Well, I think this is a, this is a question that I've always found difficult to answer. Why do gay men especially uh, like Eurovision? Does it have to do with the uh, genre of pop music that is uh, mostly associated with Eurovision, Europop? Um, does it have to do with the popularity of divas in gay culture? And then, you know, it's not... You can't say all gay men uh, love Eurovision. Some like soccer, some like Eurovision, some like this, some like that. So... It's it's a very difficult thing to explain, but it is still true that fans of Eurovision, especially when you uh, visit Liverpool now and you go to the uh, to the events uh, associated with Eurovision, you do see a lot of gay fans. Mm. So it's the flamboyance, isn't it? That would be well, part but, but of it. That, I mean, that's that's a, such a cliche, is it? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, well, yes, it is. Yeah, but okay, and not as you say, not not every gay person is like that. But colourful costumes, uh, the the flamboyance of the whole event would be a significant part of it because there's not a lot of international events which is which everyone's in, whether they're gay or not, uh, that are like that. Can't think of anything else, in fact. No, but I. Um I think that, you know, the diversity of Eurovision is what makes it special. You know, you do have a more diverse fan base beyond the gay fans as well. Uh, You know, families like to watch it together. 
the demographic actually of uh, television viewers is more inclined towards uh, adults and seniors. Um, also, because these days they're the ones more likely to watch television. Young people are more likely to consume Eurovision through um, other media. So it is a very diverse fan base, I would say. And even those who aren't fans, who will just watch the show once a year, enjoy it with their friends and family, have a party, as you said, you know, they're important uh, Eurovision consumers as well. So I would say that it's a much more diverse uh, viewership and um, that this is really what makes Eurovision very special. Well, Dean, the one thing we haven't really mentioned in this whole thing so far is the music. Because, I mean, and that is in theory at the centre of it. How has, how have the songs changed over the years? Because at one point, as we, we mentioned, they were seen as being the height of naffness and Europop, kind of Euro trash almost. Even though there was, ta- you know, talent in the country. So yeah. uh, before we started talking to you, I was mentioning, you know, we won in 1967 in the UK, Sandy Shaw singing Puppet on a String. This is the year that Procol Harum was singing Wider Shade of Pale and the Rolling Stones, Ruby Tuesday. The Beatles were in there. Yeah. High. You had Lulu to say with love. There wasn't a shortage of absolutely stellar tracks in the UK. And we had Sandy Shaw, Puppet on a String, the next year... Uh, we came second with Cliff Richard singing Congratulations. I mean, you know, if you'd pick the worst songs of those years, well, they were our Eurovision Song Contest entries, and they did well. Yes, they did. So how has the music changed, Andy? Well, uh, in the beginning, the songs were very much uh, chansons and ballads, and then there was discussion in the European Broadcasting Union concerning uh, that type of music because they thought it wasn't exciting enough, it wasn't interesting enough, especially to attract mm. uh, younger viewers. And so changes were introduced in the late 1960s and 1970s to the rules of the contest, allowing bands to participate. Then, for example, we have ABBA winning in 1974, which really changes the um, impact of Eurovision. But I would disagree that the songs um, have generally been of poor quality. If you go back to NAF, I think that's the word example, <laughs> Domenico Modugno's Volare, came third yes. in Eurovision, but it became the biggest ever non-English language international hit. Yes, it's, it's still heard a lot. It's very much around. But, but if you went through the years, Dean, of the contest, okay, ABBA is an exception. But if you were to pick out any songs from the last 40 years, it would be only a handful at best, you could say, that anyone still remembers at all. Well, it depends, again, which uh, regional markets you're looking at, because a lot of these songs may not go on to become global hits, but they'll become uh, hits in the uh, linguistic regions uh, that they come from, in uh, Scandinavia or in the former Yugoslavia or in the Spanish-speaking world. Remember that a lot of uh, Spanish-language entries became successful also in Latin America. So they may not have been successful in the United Kingdom or Germany, but uh, they were successful in a very big regional market so i think how we measure success is uh something that that is uh that we could argue about and i think that these songs uh were much more successful just not on such a transnational scale they certainly seem to be less formulaic don't they these days there's a bit more experimentation going on thank yes. goodness well is is there a formula now do you i mean if you were to predict and i'm your historian not a predictor i get that but mm. if you were to say what kind of song would likely win this year would you be able to hazard yeah could, could we actually forget about the artists and just have artificial intelligence create the eurovision song contest for us is i'm the sure question. someone's tried that i'm sure as well and i think that's something uh you know we'll we should be worried have about to deal with in the near future <laughs> 
But um, I think that the that the tendency these days is to go for more authenticity. What I've been noticing in my analysis of Eurovision entries this year and comparing it to recent years is that uh, there are more songs uh, produced with the participation uh, by the artist. So produced or, or completely composed and written by the artist. Singer-songwriters, basically. Exactly, singer-songwriters. And um, there, so there's more of this tendency towards uh, authenticity. Also, when it comes to singing in uh, national languages, the audience has tended to prefer that in recent years. But this year we see less songs in national languages. Um, so which is, of which is a shame, isn't it? I mean, because what, 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 what I would like to see is a, a competition where people actually aren't too concerned about winning. I mean, it's not, you know, thinking it would be nice to win. But really, rather than coming up with songs that we think are going to appeal to the most people across Europe, let's come up with something that is representative of our country. So we see the cultural diversity that exists within within Europe. Rather I than absolutely everyone. agree with that. And, you know, the same goes for the United Kingdom. I'd love to see entries in Welsh, for example. Yeah. Uh, yes. Why not? Scott's Gaelic. I mean, you have such a rich, uh, so many, ri- how should I put it? You have a wealth of cultures in this country that we don't know about in Europe. And yeah. um, why shouldn't that be presented on the Eurovision stage? So I, I certainly agree. I would love to see more uh, authenticity in terms of national cultures. Well, no doubt you're experiencing some of that culture in uh, in it's my hometown. You're up in Liverpool <laughs> at the moment, aren't you? So how and what's the what's the atmosphere like in the in the build up to the event? Well, I have to say that last night I was at the opening party and um, it was absolutely fantastic. All of the uh, locals mixed with international fans singing these classic songs coming from this city, these classic pop songs. I was uh, so impressed by how friendly people were, how lively they were, how much fun we all had together. This is a fantastic city. I, well, it's, it's interesting as well how the power of music and locality, and that was mm. sort of to my point. I mean, I, you know, I was six or seven when I left Liverpool, but my family is all from, 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 from Liverpool. And uh, You'll Never Walk Alone still brings a tear well, to my eye. Sung, sung at the coronation party, yeah, of course, exactly uh, as well. fam- famously. Yeah. But, and I suppose what about, I mean, you know, you've seen a lot of these contests, Dean. I'm going to push you to the awful question, who's going to win this year? <laughs> well, I actually think it might be Finland because the Finnish entry stands out in its uh, performance, in the actual song itself. It mixes heavy metal with uh, dance pop. It is in Finnish, so it has an element of authenticity, but it also stands out thematically. It's about going out on a Friday night, partying and getting drunk. And it contrasts very much with um, the biggest group of uh, songs in the contest, which are about anxiety issues, toxic relationships, these uh, problems that people are facing with mental health. So it's a much more positive, fun and uplifting song. And it really does stand out from all of the rest. But also a bit for Liverpool as well, maybe. Maybe all of those issues, absolutely. (laughs) But a bit more, a bit more rootsy as well, isn't it? You know, getting to the number of issues, which I think is which is important in music. So, if we're heading in that direction, Dean, it's been great. I wonder whether these are sort of we're seeing the halcyon days actually for Eurovision. Whether these are the best years? Oh, I don't know. I think Eurovision is always having a golden age somewhere. You know, it just changes (laughs) according to country. So, the early years, you know, was an Italian golden age. Then it became a French golden age. 
Age, then it became a British Golden Age. There was an Irish Golden Age in the 1990s. So I think there's always a Golden Age. It's just right. in, well, in a different country or region. Let's hope it's a golden experience. Dean, thank you so much for being with us and uh, giving us, well, the, the, the lowdown, the details, the information about the Eurovision Song and, Contest. And enjoy the party, Dean. Thank Definitely. you. Thank you for the wonderful British hospitality. <laughs> Dean, thank you. The other great thing about Eurovision, of course, it's a live event. Mm. And uh, so there's always the chance on live TV. There's very little live TV these days mm. that something's going to go wrong. So some yes. of the protests we've seen, I mean, oh, that is yes. part of it. You tune in. Yes. to see that sort of I thing going on. I don't think at the Eurovision. I'd be surprised if there well, are you protests. Never well, there might be. There mm. might be. But, funnily enough, protest is mm. what we're going to be talking about next. Yes, well, of course, uh, last weekend we had uh, protesters uh, shoveled into the back of a truck Anti with their placards. Yes, yeah. yes, a lot of controversy about that. But the police made the point, and it's under new legislation in this country, which is that uh, you are less allowed to be disruptive. Mm. Um, we'll get into what it is, but how far should you be able to disrupt other people's lives? And is that new legislation a step too far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because, you know, th there is a strong principle, which they say they still adhere to, which is that people are allowed to protest, but isn't the whole point of protest that you have to cause disruption because otherwise nobody notices mm. I mean that's that's one argument on the other hand are you allowed to you know stop people being able to get to work or to hospital and or where they need to be and do protesters push too far sometimes and do they work against themselves in, in, in doing that yeah you do know, they make themselves unpopular yeah. Yeah. so we'll look at all of that uh, do the right to protest uh, are we pushing too far the wrong way on that we'll look at that next week on The White Curve brought to you by Wigmore Associates thanks for listening today we'll catch that's you again it. next week bye The Y Curve 